So lost, just uh, about a, a bunch of pretty people on a weird island where nothing ever resolves, right? No, a little more than that, but that's part of it. Actually, this is what lost really is. This is what it is to me. This is what I think it means. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That is what lost is about. The single most recurring image one out of every two, one of every three shows, is of an eye opening. Just like in Amazing Grace, we're not talking about physical blindness. We're talking about that all the characters on the show are in one way or another morally, personally, spiritually blind. And because of that, they are suffering. The hope and the goal of the entire series is that seeing, perceiving the truth of what their lives really is about, that they make stop making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And their suffering in their lives might be transformed. I think that the goal of all of Lost is for its characters to recognize that if they no longer want to transmit their suffering, to share it with another person, They must learn to transform that which is most difficult to them. The idea for the plot for Lost came from, well, it traveled pretty far from there, but you at least can see conceptually where it came from. It came from, I think, a guy named Lloyd Braun, who was the head of ABC Entertainment at the time in 2004, said to a few writers, I want you to give me a show that combines Survivor and that Tom Hanks movie Castaway. Just put an island somewhere. Well... Lost grew into much more than Survivor and Castaway put together. And it's frustrating for some. I mean, Lost is not the kind of show that's real easy to watch passively, not if you really want to understand what's going on. There has never been, I think, a TV show that requires you, almost completely requires you to run to Wikipedia at the minute that it is over so you can understand what you just saw and get all the references. Now, it's frustrating. That's frustrating for some people. But actually, I think that's its richness. That's its quality. James Joyce once said about his great novel, great mammoth novel, Ulysses, about Leopold Bloom in one day, one day of his life in Dublin, Ireland. He said intentionally he put in that book so many symbols, so many stories, so many things that were difficult to understand that he was playing a little game with the academics. They would be teasing out what he was talking about for centuries to come. Now, including including Joyce's Ulysses. It's not quite that level of art. But the creators of Lost, I think, are trying to do the same thing. It is a myth-soaked, sacred story-drenched TV show. I can't list all of them, but I'm going to try and list some of them at least as much as I can do in one breath right now. It references Star Trek, Star Wars, classic comics and graphic novels, the Exodus narrative from the Hebrew Bible, and just to make sure the Egyptians have their role in it as well too, ancient Egyptian symbols of eternal life and goddesses of fertility and rebirth. It includes Hindu deities, the lineage of the Lamas of Tibetan Buddhism, the Little Prince, Narnia, C.S. Lewis, Lewis Carroll, Kierkegaard and Existentialism, Enlightenment philosophers, Christ's passion and resurrection, and then of course alongside that, the Doubting Thomas, And then finally, close to my heart, 
It references over and over again the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. <laughs> now, this is the question. How could that all possibly hang together? It hangs together in the same way that our lives hang together. It hangs together in the same way that progressive spirituality, liberal religion, hangs together. It says that any story that helps us find us, any story that helps move us from that place of myopia, of not being able to perceive the place of our lives towards that wider, deeper, truer vision of who we really are, any story that helps us find what Thomas Burton called the hidden wholeness, the hidden wholeness of each of our lives, any story that does those things is a story worth telling. That's what Lost is about. It is the reason for this series, not just that I love Lost, which I really, really do. The reason for this series is that the show is really an allegory, a spiritual allegory of the soul's progress through this life, of all souls' progress. Because at the base of all the amazing, wonderful, convoluted mysteries and theories about what is really going on and all the learned nods to all those different sources that I just named, that the show has piled higher and higher and skyward to the point where some people think it's just going to tip over. At the base of all of that is that ancient quest for a life truly worth living. Even the kind of life as some characters have to face in this show, the kind of life that is even worth dying for. One with clear purpose, one with deep meaning, one with a uniting love that animates all of our lives, invites us to be raised up to the realm of spirit, and not to the full conceptual understanding, but very much to the experience of what we say when some of us say God. Today, I'm going to start off with Jack. You show that picture, Jack. This is Dr. Jack Shepard. Everyone, Jack, Jack, everyone. <laughs> Some of you know him already. He is the first person we meet on the island, on this mysterious island where Oceanic Flight A-15 has crash-landed. He is the leader of the so-called Losties. He is also, as all the main characters are, very lost himself. Now this message today is framed by a question that I got last Sunday after service from one of our 11, 12-year-old uh, boys. He asked this, and the insight, insight behind it is, is really remarkable. He says, how do you not cry, addressing me, how do you not cry when you are doing someone's funeral? Well, my quick answer, which is also the true answer, but I need to dig a little deeper than that with him. And then also when I was talking about it with his parents a little later on, because I was really impressed that he would ask this question of me. I said, in those moments, it's not about me. In those moments, it's not about me. See, if my emotions overtake me, if I'm overwhelmed, then I, I take from myself the very thing that in the first place equips me to be there, that someone would ask me, bless me with the privilege 
of helping other people remember and mourn and say goodbye to and celebrate a life that has just passed from this earth. But here's the rub. If I put that stuff, that emotion that I feel too, to the side for too long, if I outsource it and just keep outsourcing it and keep putting away and keep compartmentalizing it, if I keep it away for too long, then I do lose touch. I lose touch with who I am. I lose touch with what animates me. This is Jack's story. This is Dr. Jack Shepard's story. More than anyone else I can say I've ever quote-unquote known, Jack's challenge reminds me of these words from T.S. Eliot, from his beautiful prayer-slash-poem, I think called Good Friday. Eliot said, Lord, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. And by the way, what I read in that is, oh, simultaneously too. <laughs> Teach us to care and not to care. This is what Jack is on the island to learn how to do. He is a physician. He is a healer. He's a surgeon. He's a leader. After the flight has crash landed on this mysterious island where actually they're not really supposed to escape from. The whole point is for them to get there. When it feels as if it's all turning into Lord of the Flies time there on that island and each person set against each other, the strong versus the weak. He utters these amazing words. He says, when things seem to be going completely to hell, he said, we will either all learn to live together or we'll all die alone. Live together, die alone. Mutual survival, mutual strength, interdependence. He knows that they have to start to get to work of surviving on the island, not just waiting to be rescued for someday. It's about the life they have right there and right then. But the irony of this, of live together, die alone, coming out of Jack's mouth, is that he is entirely alone within himself. He is the physician who doesn't follow those words. Physician, heal thyself first. He is alone because he cannot move beyond being in control, beyond locking down his life. And it's not because he's a dictator by nature. He, in fact, is motivated by some deeply kind humanitarian impulses, by altruism. He is just trying to fix everyone and everything all the time. He's trying to make sure it's all okay. He's trying to make sure he's reliable. He's trying to make sure that he is doing everything that he can all the times that he can to make sure the people that he reluctantly somehow is leading but is leading, that they're going to be okay. This temptation is not just for medical professionals and not just for people in the helping profession, but this temptation to want to control, to want to fix. It comes to all of us at some point in our life. It comes to us when we sit by the bedside, by the hospital bedside, in the doctor's waiting room of those people who we love and we're just not sure what answer we're going to get. It comes to us in those moments when in our professional lives, in our personal lives, we know that people need presence from us, that they need an answer from us. They need a good word, a kind word, the word that will help them find their way through to the other side, to the other side of whatever challenge that they're facing. In those moments, 
as parent, as child, as friend, as mentor, as minister, as doctor, as lawyer, whatever position you are in. In those moments, it's so difficult and so necessary to learn. It's not truly about us. We do sometimes need to put aside part of our own fears, our own anxieties, our own needs, so that we can be there for another person. Compartmentalizing, this is called. The only problem with that is that if we too regularly compartmentalize those parts of ourselves that are most important of who we are, cannot find that balance between that emotional authenticity within ourselves and that need to be there for another person, if we cannot find that place, that difficult balance, that delicate balance that teaches us to care and not to care simultaneously, then our compartmentalization becomes nothing more than a tomb, a place where things cannot breathe and things cannot live. So learning to give the tough stuff, the difficult emotions, the challenging things, a resting place within us without being overwhelmed by life, allowing them not to go too far, but not to get too near. Call it a Goldilocks and the Three Bears kind of spirituality. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Not to swing too wildly in either direction. This is the challenge that Jack faces on the island. One of the cool things about Lost, one of the things I love most about it, is that it tells a lot of its storytelling, not just what's going on the island, but through flashbacks and then in a complete amazing pivot moment that unfortunately I had ruined for me because I read ahead and someone mentioned it in passing and they told me, and I swear, I mean, relative to, to, to the people who I love and bad things happening to them in their life and really horrendous things that hurt me personally, this is the biggest regret of my life. That I knew that the end of season three was coming. And oh, I wish I would have been surprised. But anyway, so sometimes there are flash forwards there too as well. And then in a neat little storytelling trick, and I won't even get into trying to explain it to you how this happens. But there are now in season six, the finale season of Lost, where I'm doing this message series before it goes off the air. There are what they call flash sideways. Because there's a parallel reality that's been set up as well too. But in the first ever, by the way, if you are intrigued now by me talking about Lost, do not start watching this next Tuesday. It's all on DVD. Go back and start at the beginning. Please, you will be rewarded for it. Go back and start at the beginning. Jack's first flashback that we ever see him in, he is an 11-year-old boy and a friend of his, a friend who's physically weaker than, than Jack is, has been jumped by a couple bullies after school, and they're beating him up. And one of the bullies says to Jack, don't get up, stay there, Jack. Or you get your ass kicked. Stay down. Jack doesn't. He gets up. And he, like his friend, gets pummeled. And the next thing that we see in this flashback is young 11-year-old Jack standing outside his father's office. His father, a surgeon like Jack is, a high-achieving spinal surgeon. We hear the glass and the ice clinking. Dad's enjoying a scotch at the end of a long day. Dad enjoys a lot of scotches, as does Jack as well himself, too. He sees his son, perceives his son hanging out there on the periphery. He says, come in, but not to comfort him. His dad's words sound like a sentence over Jack's life, even if they're... In fact, appropriate. 
He says, don't choose, Jack. Don't try to be a leader. You don't have what it takes. Look at me. I had a boy your age on my operating table today. I was able to come back and pour myself a drink and watch Carol Burnett's show until my sides hurt because I laughed so much. Why do I have that, Jack? Why do I have that? He said, because I could just sort of let it go. Jack doesn't. And those words, you don't have what it takes, resound through him over his entire life. When I was 16 years old, my dad told me, sort of after the fact, is that my life was starting to take on some semblance of normalcy, a little bit. My life was emotionally very chaotic. And my dad told me that he was very afraid as I was growing up that I would become like Billy Budd. Any of you remember your Herman Melville? That story set out at sea on a ship like Herman Melville sets many of his stories. Billy Budd was a deeply kind young man who was taken advantage of by everyone that knew him. Because he let everything in. That's where in some ways Jack's dad, as cruel as he was, was right about Jack. Jack lets everything in. He cannot let it go. But it's not as if Jack's dad is a model of mental health. He's not. The guy's a wreck. (laughs) He is a great surgeon, but he drinks away his gift. He is callous to those around him who need him. We hear a lot in spiritual circles sometimes here as well. We talk about letting go. But letting go only really matters when we first held something really valuable. Letting go only makes sense when we know what it is to love something more than ourselves. Letting go without loving is just plain old indifference. That's Jack's father. So Jack, in the classic overcorrection of some time between the generations, Jack cannot let anything go. In season four, he shows us what a complete control freak he is, that his appendix is about to burst on the island and there's another medical professional there who is willing and able to do the surgery and has some anesthesia to be able to give him. And Jack says, no, I want to stay awake throughout the entire surgery so I can see through a mirror my abdominal cavity and I can tell you what you might be doing wrong. He is a complete control freak. In other flashbacks, we see that his father's one One real serious, one authentic attempt to find sobriety was undone by Jack because Jack, as his own life, is spiraling out of control and he becomes lost. He is convinced that his father, who's become secretive because he's trying to rebuild his life, he's actually secreted because he is having an affair with Jack's former wife. He barges into this A meeting, punches his father, and starts his father back down towards the path of eventually losing his life. That's why Jack is on the plane, because his father has gone to Australia from Los Angeles on one last, what will turn out to be the final bender of his life. And Jack has gone there to retrieve his father's body to try and bring it back for burial to Los Angeles. Another uh, work of art, I use that intentionally, with Lost, another, uh, in this case, cinematic work of art, the movie Magnolia, that I don't know if any of you saw in the late 90s. One of my absolute favorites. Big, like Lost. Big and sprawling and miraculous stuff is happening all over the place. And it goes on and on and on. But one of the lines repeated in that movie Magnolia is, We might think we're through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. 
That's what the island is about to all the people on it. We might think we're through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. See, Jack has the opportunities we all do when we lose someone we love to mourn that person. He can mourn his father, but he cannot, I'm talking now not in the physical sense, he can't just bury him. Jack wants to fix his grief as if it was something that had broken down. Jack's whole problem is he cannot relate to someone that he hasn't fixed. And big, 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 big red flag here. He first meets the woman who was his wife and then becomes his ex-wife because he fixes her spine when it's crushed in an accident. He can fix her physically, but the problem is he never gives up on that fantasy of fixing her. That's the hope of real relationship. Real relationship, whether it's friendship, romance, partnership, whatever it is, that we will give up that fantasy of thinking that we can fix another person. The great promise of authentic relationship is not that we think, not that I hope I would be fixed, but that we hope we will learn what it is to love and to be loved. And that through this love, we might understand what it is to be changed. I do not think we are built like machines that just break down and then we tinker inside them and we get them out right there running on the road again. I don't think we are fixed. I think instead we develop. It's kind of like before the era of digital cameras and you could just pop it out onto your computer. And that old style of developing a photograph, you needed the right chemicals, you needed the right environment, you needed to take the film out and expose it in the right light and put it into the right bath so that what was in it could develop and could reveal itself. I think that's the way our lives are as well too if we find ourselves in the right environments if we find ourselves surrounded connected with the right places and the right people the right environment can help to bring out that which is within us the properties already inherent in here that hidden wholeness jack learns painfully that the power to heal really has to start at home He has to learn, as that old maxim says, that a few years ago, Spider-Man returned to the common parlance. With great power comes great responsibility. And actually, I want to change that just a little bit. With any power comes responsibility. Why? Because all of us, whatever we consider our level of power to be, we can confuse that power with the desire to control the desire to dominate, the desire to impose our will upon someone or something. And the more controlling we are, the more lonely we become. So that maxim, great response, great power means great responsibility, is not just to curb the excesses or the abuses of power of those who hold it badly, although it is for that. It is also to benefit those who have power. And are in positions of authority. By saying remember you are not alone. That's what the word responsibility means if you break it down. It is literally the ability to respond. That is a great blessing for anyone who holds any position of power. Because to recognize it's not about us. We can be called to recognize that there are other people here as well. The ability to respond is a ticket towards the release from our own isolation. Jack, in his pilgrim's process and progress, he's learning this. This past week, just this past week's episode in season six, this final season, he is learning what it's like to work with and alongside other people. 
Now, it's difficult for anyone in any position of power, although I would dare say pretty difficult, especially for men at times, to recognize that the opposite of activity is not passivity. The opposite of activity is not passivity. The deeper thing what Jack realizes and what all people who hold power meaningfully and kindly realize is that it is about receptivity. The ability to receive our lives and other people's lives without that desire to control. This path of receptivity, this is entirely what that 11, 12-year-old boy was asking me. He was giving me a big challenge right there to remember. When you're serving someone or with someone who's in pain, how do you handle yourself? How do you give that gift to yourself of being unmediated, of allowing things within yourself to really be there and to really feel? My spiritual practice is something called centering prayer. In some ways, it's deceptively simple. It is consenting or learning to consent to that interior silence that its practitioners teach us is part of that God stuff in us that we were just born with. I love it, and I love the phrase even before I started centering prayer and really got serious about it recently, that centering prayer was a method of what is called divine psychotherapy. I never knew that until I experienced it. You can't think yourself into divine psychotherapy. You can only open yourself up to it. Whatever your spiritual practices, whatever your ways of opening yourself up to that hidden wholeness, that deeper layer of reality, a developing spiritual life provides us the means of real emotional accessibility. Recognizing that when we don't try and fix ourselves, we can actually learn without pride and even without egocentrism to really love ourselves, to love all that stuff that's going on in here, good, bad, indifferent, difficult, not difficult, really love ourselves, and in that way, through that authentic self-love, be drawn out into the lives of our neighbors and know what it is to love them authentically as well. We can be found. We can find ourselves. We can find others. We can no longer have to be isolated. A friend of mine this week who I've known during this past decade She has always known herself and she's always been known for this really keen, penetrating insight, this ability to see and cut to the chase of things. Deeply analytical, very rigorous in her mind. She also, in the last few years, has really begun to work on her, quote-unquote, spiritual side. (laughs) She's really started to take spiritual practice seriously. And she's come to realize that this keen intellect, this keen ability to see and perceive, sometimes hides something. It sometimes hides compassion. That sometimes that ability to analyze and to perceive might come across as judgment. It's not that the compassion isn't there. It's just that she has learned in her spiritual development to give herself time. To say even if we lead and even if she leads with the analysis or leads with the judgment, the compassion will come trailing along eventually. So her practice, like all practice, is about opening up and learning patience. Learning to give herself time for that compassion to catch up and show itself as a true part of who she is. She has learned what no controlling person ever will learn. 
which is that the gift of receiving self is not a ticket stamped with a prearranged time on it. Its scheduled arrival cannot be dictated. It can be awaited on. It can be waited for. It can be opened up to. But it can't be controlled. Ultimately, I think for all of us, we want to face that balance of what do we let go of? What do we let in? How do we feel the difficult stuff without it being overwhelming? How do we allow our first response, as good as that might be, not to hide all the other necessary responses that come after it? The question is, and actually I'm going to show you this, I can demonstrate it more than I can just tell you about it. How do we handle those barriers within ourselves? How do we handle those barriers between us and life when we feel that things might be too overwhelming, but we don't want to be shut off and we don't want to be shut down? How do we do that? How do we compartmentalize, if only for a time, but not just shut down entirely so that we become closed-off people? Well, we've got a great demonstration of that right here. we got a wall... And we got a door. Even when necessarily we need to build healthy walls between ourselves and life, the most difficult thing is when these walls become internalized. I could bang myself up against this to the point that I am bloodied and it's not going to come down. This wall will put many more dents in me than I will put in it. But even from time to time when we need to close some doors... We need to say it's not about us so we can be there for another person. This wall cannot be opened. But a door always can. To recognize that so much of our emotional health, our spiritual health, the ability of us to be truly there in this life is to recognize we don't need to build walls. We can learn to open doors. We can learn just as in that image that is a part of lost, of the eye opening, of the senses perceiving, of the hearts becoming more expansive. That if we can do these things, Truly, we will know what it is to grow. Truly, we will know what it is to be in this life fully. And truly, we will know that inside us all along, kind of like Oz, which is also something that Lost likes to reference, <laughs> we always had home inside of us all along. We just needed to open up to it. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, divine spirit animating force that invites us into a life of openness and love. May we learn to open doors that have been closed. Not to build walls that become tombs. May we face in our lives with honesty, with truth, with justice, with compassion, our challenges. May we 
wield the power that we have, whatever we consider our level of power to be, may we wield it with kindness. May we find ourselves in relationship with other people and with ourselves with a true spirit of patience, not demand, but openness, knowing that if we give ourselves time, time will give us ourselves. May we live in this fashion. May we love in this fashion. May we enter life in this way. Amen.